Hello and welcome to the Next Level Sunday Show. I'm your host, Tim Miller, with my bestie, JVL. JVL, I've got some exciting news for you. Uh, you you weren't there for the uh, for the interview that, that listeners are about to hear, but it is with Alex Edelman, the hottest young comic out there, I think, right now. His shows in New York were being viewed by all of these comedy luminaries, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin, and there's all this buzz in comedy circles about him. And, and now he is selling out on Broadway all the way through August 19th. So it's just right around the corner from you. Great white way. I got to, you know, catch the seven train over there to go yeah. watch. We'll see if I can get you backstage. We'll see. It's, it's an easy jaunt for you. You're only 49 minutes away. But yeah, um, I'm going. And uh, yeah. And so uh, we'll send a note to Alex afterwards. Uh, you weren't able to do the interview. He's a sweet guy. His show is about him as an Orthodox Jew attending a white nationalist meeting in New York. Ooh. And comedy ensues from there. But so does also, I think, deep observations about identity and empathy. I call them the reverse J.D. Vance. You know, he's kind of like the good side of J.D. Vance, you know, where I'm doing observational creative work about the Trump world, but it's for light instead of for darkness. Sounds great. Count me in, man. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so check it out. Um, before we get to that, there's a New York Times story out on Friday about Hunter Biden's daughter, who is in Arkansas, and and that he had a he had a settlement with a woman that he I guess had a relationship with during his crack phase, and they've had to have a settlement. And I guess I've been following this on the periphery, but it really triggered me on a number of counts because on the merits, the story is just quite depressing. Uh, and then in addition to that, I, I think what we're staring down the barrel of is something that's going to get really ugly going into the 2024 campaign. And so I think while there might be some a desire to just kind of ignore this and hope it goes away, it's not going to. And I just think that the story is pretty <laughs> a pretty big downer on a lot of different fronts. So I guess what was, what was your initial reaction? And then and then we can get into it. It's bad. I mean, so look, my my knowledge. I guess will you just explain it for the people who haven't listened? I guess I just did a I did a poor job of introing that there. Okay, so so back when Hunter Biden was hitting his crack phase, he met a woman named London Roberts. She uh, is from Arkansas. She had been a star basketball player in college and had made her way up to D.C and somehow wound up as a personal assistant to Hunter. She's not quite half his age, but she's close to half his age, much, much younger. And something happens, and she winds up pregnant and has their kid. And this is all happening around 2018 or so. So it's very recent history. The little girl now is is like four years old. And... When she informs Hunter that she is pregnant with their kid, he basically just sort of cuts and runs and kicks them off of his health insurance. Eventually, I think the, you know the the paternity suit winds up having to go to court to get him acknowledged paternity. He does pay some child support, it seems, although he's been looking to cut back on that. And the uh, the occasion of this big story in the New York Times is that they have reached a settlement. Hunter and London Roberts. And the settlement seems to involve him giving some of his paintings, because he's a painter now, to his daughter as restitution. And the kid has never met either her father or her grandfather, who is the president of the United States. 
And London Roberts is like her legal team is all people enmeshed from Trump world. The whole thing is, is horrible. I just found it as depressing as anything. And Hunter Biden, I don't know, bad human being, I think. Pretty easy to say that. Pretty clear Hunter is a bad human being. Indeed. There are three things I think worth hitting on this. One is just on the merits of the case. It hits me hard. And I just think it's important to start there. I, I, like Hunter's behavior is despicable. You know, while far be it for me to put myself in the position of Joe Biden, who's lost two kids and is dealing with this, you know, obviously that has now a political weight to it and dealing with the son with problems. The Joe Biden part of this isn't great. It just isn't. Part of his appeal is just the moral contrast on the merits between him and how he's conducted himself and how he treats his family and his life versus Donald Trump how he has conducted himself over the course of his life. And, and while I don't think that uh, this is not to in any way, you know, try to create equivalency or, or try to change that, the fact that that, that gap still remains, you know, th- this is going to provide ample opportunity for people in Trump world to try to cloud that. And I think that it's a merited thing. I, it's one thing to say, oh, Hunter Biden's a crackhead and try to have that blow back on Joe Biden. That is insulting. I think that it backfired during the 2020 campaign. Uh, you know, Joe Biden was large part because a lot of people have people with drug problems in their family. And Joe Biden, every leak from the Hunter Biden laptop shows Joe Biden being a loving father. This is a different story. And if this woman has Trump people around her and she seems she has an open Instagram, she seems like she's going to want to speak out. I think that this is a case where, man, you know, that this hits people at home. It hits me at home, you know, thinking about this this poor girl, this four-year-old girl who's caught up in all this, you know, feeling like she is disconnected or abandoned, you know, uh, from, you know, the rest of that family. And like to have the debate over whether you have six or seven grandchildren during an election campaign isn't a great debate to have when you're trying to, you know, position yourself as somebody who's who's running from a place of a moral high ground against Donald Trump. So I I think just on the merits of this, it was painful to read. And I think it's hard to look at it in any other way, except for to to think that the Bidens are not handling this well at all with, with that girl in mind. Then I think after that, you know, you can look at this from, you know, kind of there's the meta way to look at this from a media story. And then I think the political question about, about whether it will have any impact. And I, I don't know. Like I said, I don't think the Hunter Biden laptop had any impact. But I read the story this morning and I worry that this one might. I, I wonder where you come down on that. I think it probably doesn't. But and also I think it probably shouldn't. My sympathy here, aside from having some people with the kid and the mom, who entangled with a, this, again, Hunter Biden, just a, just a bad person. I have some sympathy for President Biden, though, because this is what it means to have a kid who's rotten. And you are caught up with the, the bounds of your filial duty to the kid versus, you know, the moral duties to do the right thing. And it's, uh, yeah. you know... It, <laughs> It weirdly reminds me of the first John Wick in which the, uh, the villain in John Wick is a Russian mobster who's a good Russian mobster, but his son is a terrible human being. And his son is the one who goes and kills John Wick's dog. And then when John Wick comes after the son, the patriarch is like, you know, what am I supposed to do here? Like, I know that my kid is no good. But on the other hand, like, I got to stand with my kid. Anyway. There's an operatic aspect to this, which I have some sympathy for Joe Biden on. Um, 
But sympathy isn't absolution. Yeah, that four-year-old is a four-year-old. And she, I think, does not deserve what's about to come. Now, there's the political side. It's the gross part, as you can see already, how the Trump people are going to treat this. And and so now this four-year-old ends up as this political football where you can see that she is going to feel disconnected from her family, feel like that she, you know, this is in, in high level. And a lot of young people deal with this, people that, that don't have fathers, people that have fathers that ran off, people that have mothers that ran off, um, though it tends to be the boys, you know, have to deal with this. But not a, not everybody has to deal with it on the front page of the New York Times. You know, not everybody has to deal with this where everybody in their school knows. And this kid is going to have to deal with that. And that is going to be exacerbated by the fact that the MAGA world is not going to have even one iota of genuine concern or sympathy for her. She is going to be used as a cudgel in the same way that, you know, the the Clinton women were used as a cult cudgel against Hillary uh, when, when Trump brought them to the debate. So I, I think there's that. The other interesting element of this, and you're always good on this, JVL, so I'll just kind of let you go, is the media side of this. And the New York Times wrote a pretty brutal profile. Yeah, I'm sorry. How, is, how did the Antifa BLM radical New York Times wind up writing this incredibly deeply reported but I'm sorry, we're just full of news value. It's hard to imagine that. You know, I don't know. The the Daily Caller, you know, I I don't recall doing any real deep dives on the way that Donald Trump abandoned, I guess, two of his wives uh, and even really cheated on the third one um, with a porn star while Barron was still... Uh, a very young baby. I don't recall a ton of a ton of deeply reported news stories uh, in the conservative media world on this. And and yet this kind of imbalance is something that they're going to continue to be able to take advantage of. This is the fundamental asymmetry of the world in which we live, right? So the liberal media is places like the New York Times, which do real value add reporting on this. And you know, it doesn't mean that the mainstream media or the liberal media is perfect. They make mistakes. Sure. They have blind spots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they, you know, like our understanding of the world without the liberal media, our understanding of the world would decrease by like 90% <laughs> yeah. because we just wouldn't learn about the things which are happening, right? If if you relied on the conservative media, which, you know, does almost no news gathering of their own, they just go and, you know, you know, uh, masticate on things that the liberal media have gone and uncovered and reported. If you had to form your view of the world around you only using conservative media because there was no liberal media, you'd just be blind. You wouldn't know what was happening. So there's that fundamental asymmetry. And the other fundamental asymmetry is, as you said, if the shoe were on the other foot here, the MAGA world would do everything they could to destroy this woman. woman. And uh, Right, the mother. And I certainly hope that the Democrats and the Biden administration do not do that. If they do, then shame on them. I think that what they will do is simply take their lumps. Like, yes, yes, you're right. Which is what they would, what the proper response is here, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's some outside groups, the David Brock group, you know, and some others are flagging for reporters that, you know, this lady's lawyer is a MAGA kook and and that there are people around her who are close with Michael Flynn. And yeah. I, I think that's fair. Like that's fair context to the story. But um but that's different than trying to fundamentally tear down this woman who got put into a very bad situation. And we absolutely know that's what would be happening across Breitbart, across Daily Caller, across Gateway Pundit. This is how I you know one of the ways you know that you're on the right side is if there is asymmetry. 
if you're on the the other side of that, that's when you know that you're the baddies. Are we the baddies here? Yeah. Well, nobody wants to be the baddies. And and this story hit me in the gut this morning. And, and so I wanted to talk about it and get it off my chest a little bit. And, um, and, and there's no value in putting an ostrich in the sand, especially if you're analyzing the politics. I, I don't know that I agree with you that this is not going to have any impact. I think that we're going to unfortunately hear a lot of the story next year. And so I think it's important to kind of look at it and think about how it's it's impacting our view of the White House and how it might impact the 2024 campaign. So with that downer, I just kind of want to give that little four-year-old girl a hug. And uh, I apologize for you guys on a Sunday afternoon to lead you off with that. But let me tell you, you got a comedian on deck and a real sweetheart, a guy, Alex Edelman, that I think that you're really going to enjoy his show just for us is at the Hudson Theater right around the corner from JVL's house until August 19th on Broadway. So if you're going to find yourself in New York this summer, get away from the heat, get into the Hudson Theater, go see Alex Edelman at Just For Us. We'll see you back here on Wednesday for the next level with Sarah. First, our friends at Acid Tongue. Peace. Hello and welcome back to the Sunday Bulwark Next Level interview. I am here today with Alex Edelman, a uh, very overwhelmingly successful comedian slash, uh, what, how does it go, man of the stage now? He's on Broadway. His show just- I tread the boards. His show just for us is, uh, is getting rave reviews from all the people that you care about. And so, but I want to start here, Alex, with this. So I'm pretty confident that of all the humans in the world, I've consumed the most Alex Edelman content of someone who's not actually seen the full show. So I'm coming in blind. I've never seen it. You have an East Coast bias. You're an East Coast elitist that has refused to take the show even 15 miles west of the Atlantic seaboard. It has not, <laughs> not gone anywhere. And as a Californian slash Louisiana, that has been challenging for me. But, you know, I've read several profiles of you and you know, consumed multiple podcasts that will be inferior to this. So for our listeners or viewers, in the case of YouTube, hi, YouTube people who, like me, have not you know, bestowed upon themselves the gift of coming to see the show, give us the elevator pitch. Elevator pitch is, uh, first of all, hi, guys. Elevator hi. pitch is I, an Orthodox Jew, I suppose, or a Jew with some thoughts about my interior life and what it means to me, uh, goes to a meeting of white nationalists in Queens. And eventually one of them was like, I'm sorry, but this guy's Jewish. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a Jew. And so like, and then there's an argument that ensues and that's the show. And so, I mean, yeah, you know, stuff you, you see all the time, pretty standard fare, but yeah, that's been the show. And by the way, and, and not to be too high-minded about it, it's been useful as a jumping off point for discussions about like whiteness and Judaism and identity and assimilation and prejudice and civility and empathy and discourse and how we speak to each other and about each other. Like that's the thing. So as far as my affront to you, are you planning after Broadway? Is this the kind of thing where you where you get to go on a tour? I don't even know how this stuff works. I'll tour it. I mean, I was just deciding this week, but yeah, I'll do a little tour and I'll bring it to LA. You will still not be 10 miles from a seaboard, but it will just be the Pacific. Yeah, 
I'll go to Louisiana for you, Tim. Where in Louisiana do you want me to do it? Thank you. I don't know. New Orleans, you come to the Joy Theater or one of our many great venues that we have here in New Orleans. That's lovely. If they want to bring me down there, I will make my first ever visit to New Orleans. You've never been? Never been. Have you been south of the Mason-Dixon line? Of course. You know, I had to march on Atlanta with the rest of my... (laughs) I've been to... Yeah, I've been to Florida. I've done shows in Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, all those... All the oh, most okay. salubrious places you'd imagine comedians come. I guess the one problem with touring your show is like you're kind of a key element to it, you know, being that it's about your identity and that you were the one that attended, you know, the white nationalist meeting. And so, you know, it would be kind of hard to cast, you know, someone to do it in your stead. You know, Richard Kind or Cynthia Erivo are my dream people. The only acceptable options. This is a little scoop for you. Richard Kind, as of this week, is going to be listed in our program as the understudy, which is so funny to me, given that. He's seen the show in D.C. He's a lovely man. The loveliest, loveliest man. But I'm to have him listed is a joke that I am just so pleased about. As I understand it, you're a frequent viewer of political shows. You watch way too much news, as best I can tell. So if you had to, mm-hmm. if you had to choose an understudy from that world, like who would you go for? Willie Geist, maybe? Willie or Donnie would be a good... I mean, Heilman would be hilarious. But I don't know if he could do an hour and a half without, without jamming some nicotine and... <laughs> It's a Nicorette gum, just him with a him with a pen, just getting all the the gum out. If the show had white nationalist characters in it, if it was not a one man show, if it was a show that like where you cast people from the meeting, Howlman might be a good fit. Howlman or Nick Wendy's or any any yeah, okay. Howlman visually would be, but as a personality type, I don't. Uh, Geist would be good, and who else would? Be? You know, it's interesting. I've never thought of casting from a. Chuck Todd. I'd be interested to see Chuck Todd. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Chuck Todd would be very good at this. Okay, let's get to the actual substance. So why did you go to the white nationalist meeting? Were you mining for material? No, but I get asked this question every single day. And I mentioned yeah. in the show that I get asked it every single day, which is a good... And the funny thing is, I don't even have a great answer for it other than that, like... And I don't understand why, but it just seemed like something I should do. Like, it really... It just seems like something I should do. Like, I've tried to come up with reasons otherwise, but like, lots of things to me just feel like things I should do. Like, I'm not going to say all of them now, but like, maybe one. Maybe one thing that I should do. Yeah, that's one thing that you, you should know, do. There are these faith fun. plays in Branson, Missouri. Okay. And I feel this really strong pull to like go to them or get cast in one and like be part of this faith play, like about the lives of Jesus. Okay. I'm just so curious about. You know, I've been to like a bunch of conferences on like nuclear Iran, like, okay. and I went once and spoke at one of these conferences. Just using your expertise as a Jewish person or? Well, I picked a name tag off a table and just like that person wasn't there and they were like, you know, it was sort of like a more intimate salon type discussion and I was there and like, just, you know, I was like, well, this is how I feel. <laughs> like, is that really how everyone feels about it at the University of Maryland? I was like, it is indeed. It is how we feel at the University. Did you have enough expertise on the subject to be able to fake? No, I didn't know. I didn't know what the hell. I, by the way, the guy that I went with, David, about halfway through our conversation, I was like, oh no, David actually knows what he's talking about. I'm just bullshitting. But I, I really feel like ninety percent of life is just showing up. But like, I've always just like benefited from showing up. Even my path in comedy has been very unconventional. Like, I started comedy in Scotland. I'm not from Scotland. I don't have a connection to Scotland, but it's just like the Edinburgh Fringe Festival was where the most comedy was. So I'm like, I just went there. And like, doesn't everyone have this urge? That's the thing. Doesn't everyone walk down the street and just be like, what's behind this door? What's behind this door? Who lives here? Who works here? 
again, it's a question I've been getting asked for four years and I don't really have a good answer other than like, it seemed like something I should do. And people are like, well, did you go for material material? And I'm like, I mean, kind of, but also like, I want to live a life where I can talk about everything. Like a road rage incident or like avoiding a road rage incident seems as important and worth talking about as like January 6th or something like that. I think that going to different places and meeting different people often gives you a window into yourself and into the, you know, the world at large that you wouldn't otherwise get. So yeah, I try to go as many places as I possibly can. Most people don't actually do it, right? Having the poll versus actually doing it. Uh, across from my condo in Oakland before I moved to Louisiana was Hispanic Charismatic Evangelical Church. It's like on Wednesday nights, they would like be in service for hours and, mm. and there'd be, you know, singing and, you know, people speaking in tongues and whatnot, or I guess I, I assumed that that was happening. Maybe that's a false assumption. You know, I talked to some of the people sometimes walking in and out, but I never actually went in because I felt like, well, A, I felt like it was a little bit of, I was an intruder, you know, and I didn't want to feel like I was, this was a mocking thing and I didn't want to feel awkward about, oh, can I leave if I'm getting bored or whatever? And so I never actually did. And my husband always thought I was crazy for even wanting to do that. Like he had no desire to that. So I, I do think that there are gradients, right? There's a lot of people that want to go try experiences like this that just, you know, put something inside their person, you know, anxiety or whatever, like prevents them from doing so. And it seems like that could have prevented you, right? That you were like, ooh, this seems fun. And then you're like, no, it's going to be too weird. Maybe this is my most controversial opinion, but I don't buy that anyone doesn't belong anywhere else. I believe in respecting every space if you can. Like if you go to a meeting of people with one political orientation, you're like, I can't believe they have that political orientation. Well, it's like, well, you went to that, like for you to be outraged that that is the thing feels disingenuous. But like, I believe that people should go where they want and observe what they want and participate in like, however much they can in the right way. Like, and so the basis of every great solo show, I think there are four things, which is who you are, who they are, What's happened? What's changed? Who's they? I was just looking up in the air. I was like, who who you are? I got that. Who they are? What's happened? What's changed? Okay, I have three for four I'm following. Who they are is, like, have you remember the song Walking in Memphis? Sure. By Mark Cohen from the yeah. early 90s? I don't know that I need to remember it. That's a, it's a live entity. It's a live organism, Walking in Memphis. You might still hear that any day now. It's a beautiful solo show when you think about it. Like, they is Memphis, right? But Mark Cohen, the real story of that is like, Mark Cohen was looking for inspiration. He read an interview with James Taylor, where James Taylor was like, whenever I have writer's block, I go to a place I haven't been before. And Mark Cohen was like, well, shoot, I'll go to Memphis. And so he actually went to Memphis. And like, if you think about it, it's about this like white Jewish guy who goes to like the land of the Delta Blues looking for inspiration. And like, if you were just taking it on its face, you'd be like, well, that's, I'm not sure that that's like entirely appropriate. But there is something about the way that like Mark Cohn invests his experience. And he actually did, by the way. He went to like Graceland and he went to Al Green's church and he met Al Green and then he went to the Hollywood and played with this woman. And like the whole song is this really beautiful understanding of who you, Mark Cohen, is, who they, Memphis and Memphis's music is, what happened, which is this set of experiences that really do provide inspiration, and what's changed, which is that Mark Cohen leaves having gotten this incredible experience that's informed this song. And so like, I sometimes struggle with this sort of light assumption that we shouldn't be in, that there are spaces that aren't for everybody. Because I do think that like, with the right amount of context and investor and intellectual rigor, 
you can put yourself in any space and get something out of it. So like, I really am sorry not to turn this into a conversation about like, uh, you know, something that it isn't, but you tell me if I'm interpreting this wrong, but the, you know, the sense is that the white nationalists that you went to visit, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't think that space was for you. The space was just for us. Right. And I think in that case, it is, you know, they have dark intentions. You going through that experience, you didn't come out of that feeling, well, maybe there's some value in having spaces that are just for us. I mean, I think that what you said about the the title, Just For Us, is something that people rarely pick up on or don't quite understand or, or parse. But yeah, that's the point of the title as well. Because to them, they're like, well, this is just for us white people. And there are other people who would look at me as a Jew, an Ashkenazi Jew, and be like, well, actually, you do belong in that space. You are a white person. Or you're a white passing person. And so like, mm-hmm. that is the tension that's created there is is worthwhile. But I guess the question is, what if I apply the same gloss to other places? Like I'm sort of looking at other places now, like the faith plays in Branson and also like spend some more time in places that are not white only spaces, but like, you know, suppose I spend some time with like the nation of Islam or suppose I spend some time with like, you know, the black Israelites church in Harlem, like who have some really, some would say anti-Semitic views. Are they subject to different social, you know, thoughts or different social approaches than, than the very unanimously disliked white nationalists. Like, what does that look like as well? Like, those are, I think those tensions are interesting to me. The thing is, I'm not an explicitly political comedian, Yeah. but some comedians are like, oh God, everything, you can't say anything now. And I'm like, new tensions mean new frontiers. Like, new tensions mean new complexities to explore, depths to plumb. And so I get really excited by the idea that there are new tensions and things that we can't say or things that we can't deal with or things that I think are hypocritical or, you know. Do you resonate at all with the contrarian conservative critic who says you can't make these jokes anymore? Roseanne Barr can't, you know, sarcastically talk about, you know, how maybe the Jews should have died, you know, without people appreciating her, you know, comedic gold. Is there something about you that looks at like the black Israelites and says, man, it would be hard for me to do this show where that was the case, right? Because maybe, maybe that'll be a little bit touchier, you know, being that I'm a white person, you know, that I'm whitish, whatever, however you're describing yourself. Yeah. And does that concern you? I don't know. How do you think about that? In terms of that first thing with Roseanne Barr, my favorite thing about Roseanne Barr is that David Sedaris has a story that he's been telling on tour about Roseanne calling him in a hotel room in Paris and just talking at him for two hours and then hanging up. And he's like, and he feels like Roseanne's defense should be whenever she does something that people are upset about, she should be like, look, I'm crazy. Ask anyone, you know, like she really does seem like kind of a lunatic. I think that any subject is fair game. Whenever anyone says you can't say anything, I do think like China has recently decided to crack down on stand-up comedians. And so stand-up comedy theaters are getting fined and stand-up comedy people are getting actually censored. And so sometimes it annoys me a little bit when people are like, you can't say anything anymore. And I'm like, well, in these other countries, they actually can't say anything. Like there are things where they're absolutely being censored. But also on the other hand, there is a bit of truth to the idea that you can't say certain Things like, I remember watching somebody complain about, you can't even make fun of like Tide laundry detergent on national television. Like there are 
Why? Advertisers, advertising, you know, like there are certain things, making fun of companies and brands is a whole different deal. Like this is a couple of years ago, but like okay. that was the, the consensus. So I never feel like you can't say anything, but I do think that there are things that you like, context is everything in those, like in those sensitive situations. Like I, I certainly feel like people's standards have changed. I do think sometimes people are punished for behavior that occurs before there is growth or something like that, or society standards have shifted. And then we're like, oh, sure. that person shouldn't have said that. They're like, yeah, no, I wouldn't have made that joke in 2012, but it was 2002. So yeah, I don't know. Generally, I think it's bullshit, but occasionally I'm like, I guess that resonates with me. I haven't specifically seen what Roseanne said, but I knew that she made a joke about the Holocaust and people were like very upset about it. Oh, it's good comedy. You might want to take some notes. I mean, I know that you've been working this same vein for a while now. And, you know, after your, all your Broadway success, you might want to think about other things. And, and the crux of the joke, see if you can stick with me, I'll set it up for you. She is saying to Theo Vaughn, there are things you can't say anymore because they are not true. <laughs> you can only say true things. So that's, that's the crux of the joke. So she, then she starts saying, Joe Biden definitely won, right? Joe Biden definitely won. I, you know, I would never say anything other than that. And then the punchline is like, also, the Holocaust didn't happen. It's kind of like it's backwards day. It's like, you remember? Yes, in, when you're in grade school. Grade school and you're like, it's backwards day. That was the crux of Roseanne's joke. And it was backwards day. And on backwards day, the Holocaust did really happen. And, and Joe Biden didn't get 81 million votes because... You know, she's a lunatic and doesn't think that that happened. It is so weird, by the way. I notice you're not laughing. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, not to use the medium I'm making fun of, but rarely do you hear subtle irony deployed as a tool for comedy from the far right. You don't usually like, here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try some subtle irony. Usually that works with yeah. my, usually that works with my crowd. That's not really the thing that they traffic in. So I approve Roseanne's use of subtle irony as a comedic device because it's so rarely seen from conservative comedians. I just, I will say it's not that funny. <laughs> well, you know, she's not at the top of her game. That's a pretty big podcast, so they're doing well. I think this goes to the point. It's like, if you're being silenced, we're in the golden age of stupid speech, actually. Mm. I under, I'm sensitive to the idea that some people are being silenced, but man, I mean, in 1980, you know, you only had a few shots to become a big shot in the comedy world. You know, there wasn't this plethora of, podcast i mean the theo vaughn podcast or whatever i think that's the guy's name uh, he's from i wasn't a big real world road rules man but he's from that it's like in the top 10 in the country and like huge audiences are listening to roseanne Barr about nonsense about donald trump and jews and you know it seems like they're doing, all doing pretty well joe rogan they're doing great selling out stadiums you know all these guys seem to be doing pretty good you know it's interesting because i actually know theo actually really have only ever had like good interactions with theo he seems nice. He wasn't doing anything. No, no. He's just sitting there. And I was like, somebody needs to coach this guy. Someone who's been on cable news with crazy people. You have to cultivate this face. Like when they say something, that's like, you know, so if the clip goes viral and you're there, you know, you're on there going kind of no. Sorry. Uh, if you're if you're just listening to this on podcast, you have to imagine my no face. But uh, Theo didn't do that. I think maybe because he wasn't following the subtleties of the joke. Though. There's a quote that I love that I've started remembering recently, which is the the best are full of doubt while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Yeah, yeah. It's William Butler Yeats. 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 Yeah. I can't remember. Yeats. Is it Yeats? Yeats or Yeats. Or Yeats. Yeats is like Yeats. 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 But William <laughs> Butler Yeats, as my Australian friends would say. Yes. <laughs> he was yeating. And I think about that yeah. a lot in the sense that like, 
a lot of comedians I know, and actually, especially me, sometimes like I'll hear a crazy person. I'll be like, wait, is that right? Because it doesn't seem right. But someone, I am willing to consider almost anything. And when I say almost, I really mean like almost. I am pretty sure that the Holocaust did happen given that most of my family was wiped out and that I've been to all of those camps and cried very hard at uh, Yad Vashem and think about it deeply uh, on the days that I designate thinking about it. And it is so hard for me to like, I just read Deborah Lipstadt's book about her trial with David Irving. That This is Deborah Lipstadt as a U.S. ambassador to Special Envoy to Combat Anti-Semitism. And she was sued by a Holocaust denier named David Irving for calling him a Holocaust denier. It is really interesting because she had to defend the Holocaust happening in British libel court, which is a really horrifying... By the way, there's a very decent movie called Denial about this. But the okay. book is, is as good. And it's fascinating because it is so hard to hate people. For me, it's hard to hate people in a face-to-face -face way. It's hard to hate people on a one-on-one -on -one level. So like, if someone said to me, and by the way, people have said to me, you know the Holocaust didn't happen, or like the Holocaust is. So in Wales, after a show, someone was like, just so you know, Holocaust, you know, it's exaggerated. Only like a couple of thousand Jews died. And I was like, well, it's so weird to see someone with a, with a liver and a set of kidneys and two eyes and a mouth saying this to me because I'm receiving it as an opinion. But it's so crazy. Does any of this make sense, Tim? Like, it's hard for me. It's hard. It if you are a person for whom a big part of your life is parsing human behavior and you receive very inhuman behavior or behavior that is so extremely non-standard, it is very dysregulated. I don't know. That's not me defending Theo or me defending anyone who has to go on TV with, like, Glenn Beck or something like that. But, like, I do think about this sometimes. Like, if you're sad on Bill Maher or any of these places where people who are crazy and people who aren't crazy intersect and you're like, yeah. how would you actually receive it? It would be an out-of-body experience, I imagine. Well, I'm just giving you a tip, as, and there are a lot of areas of expertise you have over me these days, but here's one. If you have to do Bill Maher and share a place, which seems like you're on that trajectory with crazy people, I just, you know, you cultivate a, I'm not sure about that face. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, it's just kind of like. It's how hmm, I feel most of the time. That seems wrong. And then you're, then you're cool. Then you're cool. You know, then uh, people still might get mad. Like they still might be like, Alex, you should have refuted them right there on live tv but that's harder than it seems so at minimum you got to do the, the i'm not sure about that tim face. you watched that episode where heilman was on with russell brand right and heilman I did. did a very did. good job with russell brand who was doing all this sort of like neil strauss the game persuasion tricks or something where he's like touching john and being like john darling what you have to actually understand and john heilman <laughs> is just there like i thought he kept his cool beautifully and it was like and I thought, God, you know, I've never had a knock on wood with that type of thing. Heilman had an I'm not sure face on the whole time. He was doing good with that. But it was hard for him because this was, um, uh, he's a, I don't know if I'm, if I'm betraying some confidences here with John Heilman, but he's a huge fan of Take Me to the Greek. <laughs> it's a Russell Brand movie that's pretty good. And when we were on the circus together, he loves this movie so much that he made me watch it. We drove across Florida or Arizona, some state, I forget. And, and he made me watch it with him in the car. 
and laughed and laughed. And so I think it was disappointing. It was on two levels. He was like, I'm dealing with a crazy person and I'm dealing with a crazy person whose art I, I admire and love. And so I, I don't want to be too hostile, but I don't want to be. Anyway, I thought Howling did a B plus job. I give him a strong B plus. What would bring him to an A? <laughs> I just, there were a few points where I wanted more forcefulness. He went at Russell a couple times where I was like, he had the better of the points. And then a couple times, and I get, I get it. Look, I've been in these situations and I'm grading on a very high curve because I want to do an A for myself. And I've given myself worse than B plus before. And, um, you know, you're watching it and it's the uh, Costanza, like the jerk store thing. You feel like I had the line. I had the, the comeback. And there are a few times where I'm sitting there watching it. Be like, Heilman, you have him on this. This one, this thing's fucking stupid. You know, he's talking about how the corporate media is behind this and that. And and it's like, you're on Fox. You know, he's making the, he was talking about how the corporate media was lying about the vaccines and how, and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and Brand was making just such ludicrous. And I just think that the domineering nature of his personality made it hard to find times how had to pick his spots on rebutting it. That's all. That's the B plus. I don't know. I don't know how to put this. Like my first big issue with him is that when he was like, don't vote. I asked him, actually, when I was there, I was like, why are you telling people not to vote? There's no such thing as not voting. Like David Foster Wallace covered this in his piece on the John McCain on, on, in yeah. 12 Monkeys. David Foster Wallace is like, there's no such thing as not voting. You either vote or you tacitly double the value of some entrenched diehards vote. Right. And I'm like, there's no such thing as not voting. Like, don't fool yourself into thinking that like you're making a brave choice by not voting. It's very much in the interests of like the people that you hate to keep you at home doing one hitters and like, and never getting to the booth on voting day. Yeah. And so like I had this chat with him and he gave me a really smart response that actually didn't mean anything. Like he gave me a really smart response that actually had no substance to the thing. So I was like, wow, this guy is like actually an expert at BS. Like this guy's actually a really, you know, there is something really, really intelligent about his utter lack of substance. But I trust that most people will see that and be like, well, this is a smart guy who just doesn't quite know what he's talking about. No, let me tell you, most people will not see that. So without giving away too much of the show or any, any necessarily. Um, so you did go into the lion's den and, you know, we've been talking about this and, and this desire when you're with other humans to kind of, you know, want to give the benefit of the doubt at some level. And, and I'm curious, did the white nationalists suck you in on anything? Were there anything where you're like, man, they might have a point on this hmm. or they want to be my friend or I don't know. Did you have any human, you know, kind of connection there that you didn't expect? There were a few things. And actually I'm going to say something that just didn't make it into the show because they don't have time in the show. The show's very tight. Obviously. Oh yeah, of course. She's got to yeah, be tight really, five. Yeah. Really tight, tight, tight one hour, 28, tight 80 or whatever it is. <laughs> but there were a few things where I was like, oh, you're so close. You're so close. Someone's like billionaires control our elections. And I was like, yes, I like to see meaningful campaign finance reform in the United States. Like, I actually, I don't think that's entirely off base. Like, do billionaires and global corporations, citizens united is a real problem. We should probably address it. But they were like, you know, Soros. And uh, I thought it was going to be a more salon-like exchange of ideas. Hmm. And then I realized there were arguments, but they were intra-arguments instead of inter-arguments, arguments about like the best way to do things. They're very upset about statues coming down. Yeah. And then one person was like, I don't think it's that important. I think it's like the media trying to distract us. And I was like, 
that's a very interesting center left opinion, actually. Like that's a but maybe not center off. What did he think was important? It's like the statues aren't important because it's distracting us from the goal of creating a white ethnostate. Absolutely. Well, one of them was like, "This is a thing that they're like it's a symptom instead of the disease," and I was like, "That's interesting." Like they were like, "It's part of the erasure of white men, the replacement of the replacement of white men. It's not okay." Like I talk about this in the show. I do have a moment of empathy for them where I realized that a lot of this has to do with their sort of lack of community. Like there were moments where there were a few people in this room. And I, again, I don't say this in the show, but I could see a few people in this room wanting to sort of not agree with any point, but not sort of like pitch against the grain. Like there are a few people who are like, I don't know that I agree with that, but I don't really want like, this is my community. And so much depends on my community here. Details have been changed to protect me and other people. And whenever anyone's like, did this happen? I'm like, yes. Or like, did this happen? I'm like, no. You know, like I'm very, very clear that the show is comedy. Now it's right. like stand up It's like 70%, 80% true now. Uh, and different characters are combined. And I had a director sure. who was really brilliant about like, I used to be like, well, that's true. And he's like, well, it's not funny. So it's gone. You know, like this. <laughs> It was like, it has to be entertaining. Yeah. But yeah, my dad used to say this thing about that, used to quote this Einstein quote, that God in his infinite wisdom created three things, Nazism, integrity, and intelligence. And he said, but he made it so that you couldn't possess all three at once. So you couldn't be a Nazi with integrity and be smart. Or you couldn't be a Nazi who was smart and have integrity. Oh. You could, and you couldn't, have both, like, you couldn't have both of those things and be right. a Nazi. There was failures oftentimes in this room in their willingness to see other people. I was like, well, I feel like I'm doing all this work seeing you. Like, don't you see other people? Don't you see other people who feel powerless and voiceless and want to, you know, that was the one thing I was sort of like itching to get at with them. If there's a failure for me in this room, I was never able to quite yeah. be like, well, don't you, don't you see other people struggling out there more than you? Was this inspired at all by your avid reading of the, you know, New York Times adventure tourism into conservative diner world, you know, because there is an element of this that's like that, right? Where it's like, what you're trying to do, like has a depth to it, that what they they didn't do. And I'm just wondering if like, because they were trying to get at those same questions, right? Like trying to understand, oh, is this economic anxiety? Or, oh, is this, you know, what is happening? I will say that the show was inspired by that in the sense that I read those pieces and went, this can't be that. This absolutely can't be blue guy parachutes into red thing. Yeah. The show isn't even about the meeting, really. The meeting is a jumping off point into exploring the gradations of whiteness for Jews, essentially, or what we assimilate in right. order to. Because I read those pieces and didn't think they were particularly inspired. One of the reasons I, you know, in the interest of disclosure for those listening, like I've been following Tim for a long time. I've read Tim's writing. I think the, don't make that face. Don't make the, I don't this is this is the embarrassing. This is, embarrassing. This is the face that he was describing. Oh, you're embarrassing. The, the I don't know about this face, <laughs> but like I think it's really hard to write about diner worlds in a unique way, and I think it's really because people try to make it writ large instead of a personal story. Like my show, mm -hmm. if it is anything, it's a personal story, which is why I'm always hastening to mention that details have been changed because I don't want my show to be a think piece. My show is a personal story about myself and the things that I would like to see. And there are failures in that. 
which I, which I try to reckon with. There are delusions in that, which I try to reckon with. I don't like those diner stories, but I understand the impulse behind them because the best are full of doubt while the worst are full of passion and intensity. And so obviously the people with doubt are going to go to the people with passion and intensity and be like, okay, what is behind this passion and intensity? Like what the fuck is going on here? And so like, I think that is like, if it shares a DNA at all, did, did any of that make sense Tim? No, it does because the missing piece is that the, and this is just the nature of writing for the New York times. So it wasn't mm-hmm. even the writers of these articles fault. you know, is, is that like, there is no them in the story, right? Like, like these stories is no, or no, there's no me, sorry. There's a them, there's no me, you know, there is no Alex in those stories because it's like, Oh, I have to write about what I'm seeing, you know, but it's not like, Oh, hello. I am a liberal dwelling New Yorker, you know, who has, you know, one uncle that lives in Iowa. And I'm like trying to understand why that person voted for Trump. And so I'm traveling to meet people like him and talk about them and look at what my own blind spots were. Right? Like there's there's none of that in those stories. It was complete. It was like a zoo. You know, it was like, I'm going to a zoo and I'm writing about what the animals behind the cages are. Right. And that is very different than that I think what you're trying to do. And I think that's what left pe- a lot of people cold with those, with those stories. What is interesting to me, Tim, are the unexpected gradations. And by the way, that's where comedy comes from, right? Comedy comes from surprise. Like, you know, all of Mel Brooks's stuff relies so heavily on surprise. And like, there is inherent comedy in the surprise. Like, in the midterms, I went to Pennsylvania to knock on doors with some friends. Mm-hmm. And you get these Democrat voter rolls. And we're walking around, and I'm with this young woman, it's really incredible, a young, young woman who's part of the four people walking around, and, you know, an activist, a college student, person of color, and we're walking by this house, and it's on our list, and it's got one of those, like, blue line flags outside, where it's like the American flag, but there's a blue line to indicate, like, support for the police. And she's like, this is the wrong house. And I was like, this is the right house. This is Pennsylvania. Like, this is a middle of Pennsylvania. Right. Like, this is a neighborhood filled with cops and firefighters. We're knocking on this door. Like, that's a very serious thing. There's also, like, real comedy there. Like, there is <laughs> right. surprise. Well, it's the Tom Hanks bit. It's, like, the best SNL bit in a while. Like, the Tom Hanks it, Black Jeopardy bit. You know? It's like that, right? I love that sketch so yeah. much. Yeah. Where, you know, like, in the button at the end, of, there's a Tom, if you don't know what Tim's talking about, there's a recurring sketch called Black Jeopardy. And it's beautiful. And there's one sketch in that series that beautifully subverts. They've got a MAGA Republican wearing the red hat. And he's, and he's there with, with all these like black contestants. And they're all in sync on one thing. And then they get to Final Jeopardy. And he's like, after the break, Final Jeopardy, lives that matter. And they're like, well, one wall lasted. And the jokes, a lot of the jokes are about like mutual suspicion and close-knit communities and like, the tension between communities and the individual that are slightly outside like the mainstream. Like it's a really interesting, beautifully wrought comedy sketch that I've seen probably like 10 or 11 times because like I love those tensions and surprises that are like, I don't know, that come up out of unusual places. Maybe that's what makes me want to go to these things. And since you admitted to reading me, which I'm grateful for, one of the things I tried to do in the book, which you don't have to admit to have not read, is like I was trying to understand the rationalizations for why people went along with Trump, people who knew better. You know, there wasn't like a clean cut answer for why some people did never Trump and some people stuck around with them, et cetera. But like one of the things I tried to explore with myself was besides just Trump's buffoonish racist idiocy prevented me from getting on board. Another thing that I think gave me an ability 
to kind of see things a little differently was that I'd already come out of the closet and like I'd had an identity changing event, you know, that I had explored. And I'm curious, like, you know, you growing up in an orthodox world, you know, being, you know, whatever you, I'm just curious if like you feel like that, like otherness from within you know, that Orthodox Jewish, Ashkenazi Jewish community, like helped you kind of have a little bit of separation, you know, to be able to kind of explore all these things, you know, in a a way that maybe other folks wouldn't have. Well, first I did read the book and liked the book and sent you a message when I finished the book. So you don't have to admit to not having read the message, but I, uh, but look, (laughs) so now it's me. So now it's me. That's the asshole. I'm turning around on you. Fuck. Yeah. Look, growing from an insular community to a less insular community like going from Orthodox Judaism or even modern Orthodox Judaism to the slight, through the slightly permeable membrane of a more a modern set. Like first, I was raised with a Talmudic approach, which meant that two sides of an argument were both treated with dignity, or three sides of an argument, or five sides of an argument. Like not to quote the newsroom, but some argument oh I know some arguments have one side, some have two, some have five, some or something like that. Like I was raised with a Talmudic background, so I understood that, and also. I was raised in a weirdly very diverse set. Like there were Jews of color. There were Jews who were heavily Republican. There was a Jew whose brother was the ambassador to Spain. Like they were all in our community, ambassador to Spain under Obama. And like, they didn't all agree with each other, but they, I'm not like, and they all coexisted because they didn't like, there were big arguments and big splits. But what I did realize is that, and I really felt I experienced this like reading your book, some people are the most of a thing first. And it is hard when you are the most of a thing first. Like if you are the most of a Jew first and that is your primary identifier and that's how you feel. Like I have friends who voted, friends from growing up who voted for Trump because like Israel to them is the most important thing in the world. And I can't imagine anyone, like they'd forgive anyone if they were, you know, if they were perceived as more pro-Israel. And I had friends who, you know, who couldn't countenance a vote for anyone who would threaten uh, abortion because they view abortion as a very sacred Jewish value uh, or like the right to the right to choose a very sacred Jewish value and other people who think it like everything was open to interpretation. So I think that insular community really informed my, my approach to comedy, my approach to discourse, my approach to how I understand people. So I just realized it's not a very funny thing to say. No, that's okay. I'm trying to get you serious. Okay, my final uh, comment about the show is, um, did I come up with this? Or has anybody else said, you're sort of like the inverse J.D. Vance. Oh, my God. So there may be a Senate run in your future. This is what I'm telling you. The, the, the J.D. Vance book. I haven't read a Hillbilly Elegy. Well, you don't have to have read it. I, I didn't, do you think I read fucking Hillbilly Elegy? I sniffed that asshole out as a phony from day one. The first interview I saw of his, I was like, this guy's full of shit. And I was like, I don't buy this. But... It landed with people because people were so obsessed in this thing. And it wasn't really intentional, I don't think. I, I know it wasn't intentional. Actually, his text, his gay roommate uh, linked his text. It's like a state senator in Georgia <laughs> leaked some of his texts where he was like, you know, he's like, oh, man, this is a Trump winning is going to be bad for the country, but good for the book. And he didn't expect it. Right. And I don't know, think that you were intentional. Right. But it's like this stew that we're in is a lot of people trying to be like, man, there's this crazy identity shit happening out there. and you know, how do we translate that? And so in a lot of ways, you're the inverse J.D. Vance. That's, I guess that's it. There's no question. That's more of a comment than a question. I'll just say that people are desperate. I think right now, like the success of the show that I'm, I'm doing, I think speaks to people's desperation for someone who will 
look at a shade of gray without like being like, so maybe they're right. But like, I think people are <laughs> really, really eager for us to have a chat about the discursive time that we're in and like the identities that we're obsessed with. And like, but also people come to the show, like the best part of doing the show off Broadway was there's a restaurant called the Commerce Inn across from my first theater. And I'd go in to eat there all the time. And the lighting's really bad. And so I could sit there and just sit and listen to people argue about the show. And it was so gratifying. I'd go in like twice a week and just sit there <laughs> and just watch. This is so much better than searching Twitter mentions for why we did it to see what people are saying about it, which I may or may not have done once or twice. You must. That fills me with shame. That is so great. You want it to spur conversation and argument. And also yeah. after every show, every this is worse than both of those things. After every single show with like maybe five exceptions over the course of this run, I go outside and I answer any question anyone has for me. And I still haven't come up with a good reason like why I went. Like I just like I just <laughs> answer whatever anyone wants. That is fan service. That is good and that is cool. That is so cool that you do that. Though it's like right on the edge between cool and humble and super narcissism. It's like the reverse uh, inverse horseshoe, you know, because Donald Trump once, this is my favorite anecdote from Maggie Haberman's book about Trump, is before Trump got famous. He famous famous when he was just tabloid famous. He would go stand outside the Trump Tower on the street corner and the hopes and just hoping people would recognize him. He wanted that feeling of like, do these people know Trump yet? You know, and so like there's like a hint of that, like a tiny hint of that inside something very magnanimous and humble. Actually, the reason I did it early on was for material because people would ask questions, and if people asked questions that I thought should be answered by the show, I'd go, oh, I have to the make show. that clearer. That's legit. I have to make that clearer for people so that even the dumbest idiot in the world would walk out not thinking a certain thing. But yeah. like, I mean, I still get some of the same questions, so I haven't <laughs> done the job. But like, you know. Some people just aren't going to get it. That's exactly what my friend PJ says. He's like, listen, a bigger audience means more stupid people also. So it's not like, you're right. There's something, there's also something narcissistic. Be like, you guys, listen to me speak for 80 minutes. Would you like 20 more? You know, like, it's a very. <laughs> okay, I want to stroke your ego one more time. Then we're getting to rapid fire. So the coolest part of this for you has to be, I mean, Seinfeld is there, goes to see you. All these people go to see you. SJP. You know, Carrie Bradshaw was like, I, I think, oh an God. Instagram post of hers or a tweet set you off. And I mean, you know, these are all, I'm older than you, but still, these are all kind of, you know, millennial. As, what are, are you young millennial or elder Gen Z? I'm a young millennial. Young yeah. Yeah. So these are all of, you know, our, you know, like our flashpoints. And they're all like coming to see you, complimenting it. So like, what has that like felt like? What's been the coolest part of, of that? Steve Martin and Seinfeld, Colbert, all the guys that I sort of worship. You know, Adam Duritz came last week. That was cool from Counting Crows. And like, oh man, how do you focus on stage when Seinfeld's out there? Like, I had to do a book reading with my mom's best friend, who I know is a Trumper. And I just, it was, I did a horrible job at the read. I just I was like, this was not my A game because I could just keep seeing her out of the corner of my eye. And that's my mom's friend. Okay. Now, now, now replace her with Seinfeld. How do you do it? I always think, how did anyone shoot Lincoln? Like the movie Lincoln or literally shoot, literally assassinate him? Literally shoot Abraham Lincoln because I'm always like, the whole audience is watching Abe Lincoln. <laughs> not watching the show. Like, aren't they? They're not watching the show. Like, wasn't when John Wilkes Booth entered the box, wasn't everyone like, well, wait, what the fuck's that guy doing with a gun? Where like, was the good like, guy with a gun in that theater? Yeah, well, I mean, definitely not in the box of Lincoln. But uh, 
but yeah, I mean, it's crazy when those guys come. And also, it's really gratifying. Like, I'm a huge comedy fan. So for your heroes and your betters, and Mike Birbiglia produced it, someone I deeply respect and admire and have grown to, to have a really great friendship with. And so to have that, that's the, you know, the cool. It's like one of the heads of my comedy, Matt Rushmore, put up my show, and then all the other heads came to see it. So, like, that's really crazy. But Steve Martin, Steve Martin giving me a joke for the show really was amazing and Seinfeld gave a great note and Colbert gave a great note and Billy Crystal gave a huge note, which was to stop using a handheld mic and start using a headset mic that really opened the show up. It's a beautiful thing to be able to have something that people can come on and give feedback on and help you work on. Like it's, that's been the coolest part. I don't know you really, except for the email you sent congratulating me on my book that I totally read, but I'm, st- I'm still kind of proud of you, which is that, is that weird? Can we be proud of one another without actually knowing you? Not it's a strange at all. feeling. That's so cool. I'm so thrilled to to hear that because I really love your I really love your stuff and I'm so pleased to be to be on this and I hope that the people listening if I've said anything really stupid will allow me some grace in my uh, the people listening will forgive you but the people listening will not forgive you don't we don't do rapid fire we are over our fire. time that I promised I know, you I know, so we're I know, doing it really fast it's a rapid rapid fire are you ready you send your comedy yes. rap, down Mount Rushmore don't care because this is a Jewish themed rapid fire and I tried to get Bill Crystal to come on and do it but he was otherwise indisposed so I had him help me submit the questions. Number one, your Jewish-themed Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore of Jews, Mel Brooks, the chief rabbi of the UK, Lord Jonathan Sachs. <laughs> I know, very obscure. You know, that's good. You got to be obscure hipster Mount Rushmore. What if I was like, Henry Kissinger? No, uh, <laughs> Joseph Lieberman. Uh, no, I think, God, this is such a hard, uh, the, the writer Nathan Englander. Jesus. God, I know. Jesus probably should be on the Jewish Mount Rushmore. Should Jesus? I think Houdini was a better magician. So I think Houdini (laughs) Houdini has to go. Houdini should go up there. Mm, I I would have put Sandy Koufax on there. Okay, that's pretty good Mount Rushmore. We'll take Houdini. Koufax is great, yeah. You know, Jews had to know that they could do sport. Okay, your tastiest shellfish. I've never had one. You can't eat shellfish. That's too bad. You're You're really missing out. Okay, your favorite Jewish holiday. Um, I love Passover. The most meaningful amends you've ever given or received on Yom Kippur? I stole money once from my grandfather to buy baseball cards, and it killed me for a year. And uh, and then I came clean to my papa, and he was like, it's okay. That was a really big one. That is so good. That is so much better than the Catholic tradition where we just confess to the priest, and then the priest tells us to do Hail Marys. That's so much less satisfying than having to go up to the human that you made amends to. And Anyway, okay, final one. All the, We did all these greats coming to see you. Pay it forward. Give us a comedy show or something, Some somebody's set, somebody's something that you think that our listeners should go see besides just for us. There's a woman downtown named Liz Kingsman who's doing a show called One Woman Show, which is very good indeed. It's running through the beginning of August at uh, Greenwich House Theater, formerly known as Barrow Street Theater, and that's absolutely excellent. And there's a comedian on tour named Danny Jollis, who I really love, who I think is worth your time. We will match them. Alex, we're six minutes over. It's been a good show, a long show. I'm so grateful. Sorry. I'm apologizing to you. You're on Broadway now. Broadway. You've got demands on your time. You're you're huge. I mean, you've got so no, much demands no. on your time. You're, you're spending 20 minutes after the show talking to your fans. Uh, you know, you are a great Jewish American. I'm grateful. We will talk to you soon, I hope. I hope to come see you in New York uh, if you don't make the show, if you don't take the show away from the Atlantic seaboard. I promise you. I promise you. I will come do it in person and not be limited just to the many YouTube clips of you I've consumed. Thank you very much. Peace out, bro. Thank you.